I want to start this morning by asking a few questions, and there you got to engage your brains this morning. You may have to go back and listen to this one later to, to put all the pieces together, but uh, try to track with me during the introduction as I collect a lot of information for us that I think is important. But I want to ask these questions first. Does God keep his promises? Can we take God at his word? Will God do what he says he will do? Does God love people? How about that one? Does God love people? Next question third is, does God desire to save people? And our last two really go together. Does God like to punish people? Does he like to send people to hell? Eternal death, separation from God forever. Well, the answer to the first question, I think, is yes. God does keep his promises. But now I want to show you some verses about one thing that God promises. From the very beginning, Genesis 2. God said this to the first man, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. Dying, you will die, God said. In Deuteronomy 32, God said this, vengeance is mine, I will repay. There's a promise. Third, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Nahum 1.3. There's a promise there. Next, the person who sins is the one who will die. The righteous person will be judged according to his righteousness, and the wicked person will be judged according to his wickedness. Do not be deceived, Paul wrote to the Galatians. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. What is, what's being promised in those verses? What does God promise? And we could go lots of other places. I limited myself to five. God promises to punish sin. He just does. Now when I ask you the question... Does God keep his promises? I saw a lot of heads nodding. So God will keep his promises. We can take him at his word. But some of his promises aren't that comforting. Right? So God promises to punish sin. And by the way, when he promises death in response to sin, it is physical death, but it's also spiritual death. And in the Bible, death is always a, a separation. Spiritual death is being separated from God. If I die in my sin, I will be separated from God forever. It's eternal death. Eternal life is being with God forever. So God will keep his promises and he promises to punish sin. The second question was, does God love people? Well, yeah. How much does God love people? Well, I'm glad you asked. God loved the world so so much that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not 
perish, be separated from God, but we'll have eternal life. Next question, does God desire to save people? Check these out. Ezekiel 18. God says this, do I actually delight in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord. The answer to that question is no. Do I not prefer that the wicked turn from his wicked conduct and live? The answer to that is yes. Or 2 Peter 3. Peter writes, God does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So does God desire to save people? The answer is yes. Our last question was, does God like to send people into a separation from him for all of eternity? We usually call that hell. The answer that's no. I just, Ezekiel 18 again, but 18.32, the second verse on the screen. God just says it plainly. I take no delight in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So here's where we're at so far. God is a God of integrity. We can take him at his word. He will do what he says he will do. But one thing he says he will do over and over and over and over is not leave the guilty unpunished. He will punish the unrighteous for their unrighteousness. Here's a related question. Who are the unrighteous? Maybe it's easier to answer the question the other way. Who are the righteous? Who does the Bible say is righteous? No one, not even one. And it says that three different times. So God has promised to punish the unrighteous for our unrighteousness with death, separation from him. But God loves people and he wants to save people from that fate. And he does not delight in sending people to hell. So what is a good God to do? How can God keep his promise to punish all sin and every sinner? Yet love people and save people at the same time. Pause before you answer that question, because I have more questions. What's the greatest commandment? If you were here, I don't know, several weeks ago, we studied this one. Somebody came up to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said, I'll tell you, the first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength and all your everything. What does God want from you more than he wants anything else from you? He wants you to love him. That's the greatest commandment. Now, if that's the greatest commandment, just what would logic tell us is the greatest sin? If the greatest commandment is to love God with every part of you, at least in some sense, isn't the greatest sin every time you and I fail to love God with every part of us? It has to be. That's the big one. You know how guilty we are. How many times a year, a month, a week, a day 
do you fail to love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? If that's the greatest commandment, every time I break that, I'm the greatest sinner, right? Here's where all of this leaves us. If we've all broken the greatest commandment multiple times, and we're all guilty and we all deserve the punishment God has promised and He will keep His promises, this is why we need the cross of Jesus Christ so badly. Because the cross is the place where God keeps all of these promises. You want to know how serious God is about sin? Look at the cross of Jesus Christ. It is violent. It is deadly. It is horrific. And it is where God punishes all sin. Now, the only way that becomes effective for us, when we went through the greatest commandment several weeks ago, I showed how the Bible teaches the only way we can keep the greatest commandment, we cannot love God unless we love God through what? Through the cross of Jesus Christ. God so loved the world that he did what? I want you, does your Bible say God so loved the world that he just said, let's just forget about all the bad things you did. I think I can write that off. No, he said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to die. Why? Because he had to punish sin. That's how God loved the world. The only way you or I can love God or anyone can love God is if we love him in response to what he did for us and our sin. Because our sin had to be punished. It is either punished there or it is punished here. Right? It either went on his head or my head. You want to know the worst pain Jesus felt on the cross? It was not the nails. It wasn't the crown. Sin caused death. Physical death, but what other kind of death? Spiritual death. Separation from God. Jesus, God the Son, was separated from the Father. Later in the book of Matthew, he'll cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me at that moment? He suffered spiritual death. The only way we can love God and be saved is through the cross. And the cross shows us God will punish sin. God loves people. God is serious about sin. God wants to save people. But we can't just come to God any way we want and expect to be saved. So here's another promise. I love this. Psalm 145, 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. I hope you were picking all that up. It's a lot. That was just the introduction. Okay? There's no low-hanging fruit today. You've got to have your brains engaged. The reason I bring all that up is because today, in the last three verses of Matthew chapter 23, I think we 
sort of feel and see and hear Jesus sum up all of that stuff way more succinctly and beautifully than I am able to. Jesus shuts the door on his public preaching ministry. The last words he said, this is a lament, he says, over the capital city of his nation, Jerusalem, the capital of Israel. And he mournfully pours out this lament where we see just what I described, that God is serious about sin and will punishment, punish it, but he loves people. He wants to save people. He does not delight in seeing people separated from him forever. We see that in just these three verses we're going to read together now. Matthew 23. Click me once there, Jason, would you? I don't know what happened here. There we go. It's on page 985 in your pew Bible if you want to have that open. This is the New American Standard. Jesus speaking, looking out over Jerusalem, he says this, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, city who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's the whole passage. Let's see what's in there. You're going to have to help me out regularly, I believe, Jason. So pay attention back there. All right, we see Jesus' angst. And his longing to save in this, in this first verse. We see his, the pain with which Jesus speaks these words in the way he addresses Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. There's no O oh in the Greek text, but our, some of our translators put that in there just to communicate this angst. And it's real. It's there. And we know that because overwhelmingly in the Bible, when somebody's name is doubled, it's a cry of, of pain, of angst, of mourning. If you know the terrible story of David and his son Absalom, I won't tell you that story this morning. It's a terrible story. But when David cried, Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Excuse me, I said that wrong. Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, my son. He wasn't cheering Absalom on at his little league game. That was, it was mourning, it was angst. And I mentioned the next time in the book of Matthew where somebody's name gets doubled already, what is it? Jesus will say, Eli, Eli, Lema Sabachthana, which Matthew will translate for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's, that's the emotion that Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem with this morning. Why is he so pained for really his whole nation as personified by the capital by the capital city? Well, Jesus comes right out and says what I argued in the introduction this morning. God wants to save people. That's what's got him so so broke up. Jesus says, Jerusalem, here's why Jerusalem is sad. Yes, you're guilty of all kinds of bad stuff, but here's why Jesus is so sad. How often I've longed. 
to gather your children together, the city's children, which just means all the people. How often I've longed to gather you together like a hen gathers her chicks. Why does a hen gather chicks? To protect them. Usually for them, it's from cold. Jesus says, I want to gather you together, but Jesus doesn't want to protect them from from cold or even from the Romans. Jesus wants to protect them from the very wrath of God. But what's the problem? They won't come. I like this translation. I've longed to gather you, but you would have none of it. If you're somebody, a bit of an aside here, if you're somebody who likes to contend for and argue uh, certain theological positions, um, I, I, full disclosure, I lean closer to being a Calvinist than I lean to being an Arminian, though I don't fit in either camp, and that's okay. You don't have to be either one. Um, here's where, even though I'm closer to being a Calvinist than I am an Arminian, I have a hard time seeing pure Calvinism fit right here. Here's what Calvinism teaches, part of what Calvinism teaches. That God chose before the foundation of the world everyone who would believe, and when God offers His grace to those He wants to save, His grace is irresistible. If God wants to save you and He offers you His grace, you cannot refuse if it was a real offer. His grace is irresistible. Here's the, and Calvinism makes it, a, it's a sensible way to organize thoughts and scriptures, but here's the problem I see right here. I see a broken-hearted Savior who has made a very real offer of protection, and what's got him broken up is not that he didn't really offer it, that the people he offered his protection to won't come be protected. And God will keep his promises. God promises to punish sin. And there's only one means of protection. We have to gather under the wings of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the only way. And so the time has come for Jesus like you've had your chance. This pains me. I find no delight in the death of anyone. But I mean what I say and I keep my promises. So Jesus says, Behold, or look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me from now on. When Jesus talks about the house of Israel, Israel's house, there's a couple things he could be talking about. The house, God's house was in Jerusalem, the temple, right? And one thing Jesus could be hinting at, and he's, really, he's going to say it plainly next week if you come back, but he could be talking about how because I'm removing my protection, the Romans are going to come in and destroy God's house in Jerusalem. That is going to happen. A.D. 70, about 37 years after Jesus says this, the Romans come in. That's what this painting on the screen is a depiction of that. 
And the Romans completely flattened. Don't leave one stone left on another of the temple in Jerusalem. I'm not positive that's what Jesus is getting at here, though. In fact, I think the Roman destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is a symptom of their real problem. It's not their real problem. On the screen here, we can tell why the Romans destroyed Jerusalem and why they have a real problem. You see what their problem really is there? Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I want to protect you. You won't be protected. And so what's your real problem? Your house is left desolate, unprotected, but why? What's their problem? Verse 39, you won't see me. Israel's real problem is Jesus is leaving and they haven't accepted him. That's a problem for anyone. Anyone who has not gathered under the wings of Jesus has this as their greatest problem. They're unprotected. Jesus says, your house is left desolate, vulnerable. I long to protect you. You won't come be protected. It's like Jesus is saying, Israel, you really want to take on the rest of the world without my protection? Good luck out there. But remember, Jesus doesn't want to just protect people from the Romans, from the bad guys. Jesus ultimately wants to protect us from the wrath of God. That either falls on my head or his head. But Jesus does not leave them without hope or anyone else. So we've seen so far his desire to save, his displeasure that people will not come under his protection, and his promise to punish sin, to leave people unprotected, to face the wrath on their own. Jesus will not stay where he's not wanted. You know that? But he does not leave them without hope. The last verse in this chapter reads this way in, 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 in full. For I tell you, you will not see me from now on, but you want to see a beautiful word of Scripture. Check this beautiful word out right here. Until... You will not see me from now on until you say, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Does this last part sound familiar at all to you? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Anybody ever hear that before? It's a quote from the Psalms. If you were here the Sunday that we talked about uh, the Palm Sunday passage, the triumphal entry, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the colt, the foal of a donkey, was, which was like hang, holding up a banner that said, I claim to be the Messiah. When people shouted, they shouted this, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is what the Old Testament promises Israel will yell when they accept Jesus as Messiah. Here's what's so cool about this. Will God punish sin? Yes. Does God want people to be punished or would he rather save? He'd rather save. Will God force people to be saved or can people resist his grace? I believe they can resist his grace. And when we do, the Lord Jesus says, you're not going to have my protection 
until, until, until and unless you accept me as the Messiah. His audience, Matthew's original audience would have known this is like saying we believe Jesus to be the Messiah. Now there's something prophetic in here, especially for Israel in this passage too, because what Jesus says here is actually going to happen one day. Israel still today rejects Jesus as Messiah, nationally speaking. Individual Jews will accept Jesus as their Messiah. They become part of the church. But Israel as a nation rejects Jesus. One day, Jesus is until will come to fruition. One day, God has promised that Israel as a nation will accept that Jesus was the Messiah all along. I want to show you where Paul writes that in Romans chapter 11. Paul says this to the early church. For I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters. A partial hardening, excuse me, a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, God has allowed Israel to reject Jesus and it's going to stay that way until God has collected all of the Gentiles like us that God has ordained to collect. And so all Israel then will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's Israel. And this is my covenant with them, Israel. When I take away their Israel's sins. There's a promise. One day Israel's going to be saved at a point some, somewhere in the future. But this passage is applicable not just to Israel. This is for all of us. God keeps his promises. He's promised to punish sin. He has given an invitation to be gathered under the only protection there is from the punishment of sin. That protection is that the punishment has already been poured out on Jesus. For those who reject that protection, God's wrath is still aimed at us. And we will remain awaiting the wrath of God until such a time as I accept his invitation to come be protected by Jesus. Now, I do want to warn you, we could open the book of Hebrews. There's evidence in the Bible that says God won't just keep asking and asking and asking and asking and asking always. There comes a point where we can reject enough time where God removes, it's like enough is enough. What do we learn from this passage? We learn about the heart of Jesus. I think Jesus, the way he cried out, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he has still been crying out to people, individuals, in a way ever since. Like you could insert your name into Jesus' words. You could hear Jesus, Brad, Brad. Matt, Matt, Rachel, Rachel. How long, how often have I wanted to gather you under my protection? 
and you wouldn't come. Maybe today is the day you decide to be gathered under the protection of Jesus Christ. Maybe today is the day that you simply tell Jesus, I, like I never understood. I thought I, would, I thought I could be okay with God another way. I thought I would be good enough. I thought I went to church enough. Whatever the case may be, I never understood. Today is the day I want to be protected from your wrath by being under the wings of the Lord Jesus. Something else we learned today, if that's Jesus' heart for his hometown, or not his home nation, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If we're are we supposed to have, as Christians, those of us who have gathered under his protection, are we supposed to have a heart like Jesus' heart? We are. As we look at, at our hometown, the cry of our heart should be, Oh, Imperial, Imperial. Oh, Chase County, Chase County. Oh, Nebraska, Nebraska. How often I have longed to see you gathered under the protection Jesus offers and you won't come. I was so touched a few weeks ago when... Uh, the, uh, the Cattlemen's Ball had been here, a huge event for a good cause, raised lots of money for cancer treatment. And those of you who are in church, the next Sunday, our brother uh, Jeff got up for prayer time. And Jeff Bubach, himself a cancer survivor, a cancer survivor understands how important cancer research is, Right? If you were here, do you remember what Jeff said through tears? He said he went to the Cattleman's Ball and he saw all those thousands of people and he just kept thinking, I hope they understand what their real cancer is. I hope they understand there's something worse than having cancer cells in your body. What's worth is having the wrath of God still aimed at your soul. Oh, Nebraska, Nebraska. How often have I longed to see you gathered under the protection of Jesus Christ. But you would not come. This morning as we transition to the time of communion, here's the way I want us to think of it. As I explained earlier, this table is only for people who are Christians, who believe that what Jesus did at the cross was to take that penalty, the wrath of God, that I really deserve. This is for those of us who have heard Jesus call us. Right? Oh, Troy, Troy. Oh, Josh, Josh. Oh, Jerry, Jerry, how often have I longed to see you gathered under my protection and at some point in your life you said, yes, Lord, I, I need the protection only you can offer. When we come around the table today, what we're doing is just reminding ourselves and remembering what he did. The protection from the wrath of God is not because God decided not to 
deliver the wrath of God. It's just that he delivered it there and not here. And so as people who have answered that call to gather together under the protection of Jesus Christ, while we hold the bread and we hold the cup, we hold the reminders that the wrath of God was poured out so that you and I could be protected. We could think of the cross as some sort of supernatural umbrella. And if the wrath of God was being poured out and that was the only place to run and hide from that wrath, would you run there? Don't wait. It is. It's just like that. It is the only way you or I can avoid the eternal death that God promises to deliver to every sinner except those who have answered the call to be gathered under the protection of the wings of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father God, I thank you so much for offering the protection only Jesus can offer. Father, if there are some here who have never run under the protection of the Lord Jesus, I pray that you would lead them in their hearts to, to run there just in spirit and in, 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 their, in the quietness of their own hearts right now to just run to you and say, I want you to protect me, Lord Jesus, from the wrath I deserve. Thank you for paying the punishment for absorbing the wrath that should be aimed at me. And God, for those of us who are already gathered under the protection of Jesus, just thank you for doing that for us. And we ask, Lord, that you would uh, just meet with us during this communion time as we remember what you did to keep all of your promises to punish sin and yet save people. Thank you for providing a way, and we believe by faith that way was Jesus and the terrible, terrible cross. Thank you for your mercy. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll pray for the bread while the guys come forward. Father, thank you so much again for offering your son on the cross. Uh, thank you that when your wrath had to be poured out, there was a substitute. And we remember him giving his body this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.